Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Uh, um, it's been quite a year, hasn't it? This time last year on the podcast, we were reflecting on what was going on in other parts of the world and how the pandemic might unfold, all thinking that maybe it might be a few weeks and we'd all be back to normal. But what an extraordinary 12 months it's been. So before we kick off with the episode, we've got the focus group coming up and uh, Danny Finkstein and Patrick Maguire. Let's take a look back over an extraordinary year in politics. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Toilet roll is one where, for reasons that are not really understood, there was a big uh, spike in purchasing quite early on. It is the honour and the privilege of my life to be elected as leader of the Labour Party. I've developed mild symptoms of the coronavirus. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is tonight in intensive care. The Prime Minister is in safe hands. The NHS has saved my life, no question. If this virus were a physical assailant, an unexpected and invisible mugger, which I can tell you from personal experience it is, then this is the moment when we have begun to wrestle it to the floor. So, supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, right? And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that? While we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will meet again. We drove for roughly half an hour and ended up on the outskirts of Bond Castle Town. I felt a bit sick. He has acted responsibly and legally and with integrity. If I were Prime Minister, I'd have sat Cummings. What is my favourite cheese? Well, that's probably the hardest question I've had so far because I really like cheese. Face coverings will become mandatory on public transport. Black Lives Matter! Any large gatherings of people are currently unlawful. For the month of August, we will give everyone in the country an eat-out-to-help-out discount. M mingling is people coming together. That is my definition of mingling. It, it is mingling. I think it is absolutely mingling. Don't kill your gran. So first of all, a you know, big shout-out to, to Marcus Rashford. The SNP didn't know last Monday or Tuesday that Margaret Covid had suspected or then confirmed Covid. A three-tiered system, medium, high and very high. Thanks, PM. And so now is the time to take action because there is no alternative. And from Thursday until the start of December, 
You must stay at home. It's wet, it's windy, it's horrible. And then the train stops. And at that point, the doors don't open. But what it does is it tells you that the goalkeeper can be beaten. We can see the candle of hope. And we must do all that we can to nurture its flame. And it's entirely uh, typical, I may say, of, of Captain Hindsight. He talks about hindsight. I say catch up. The Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency has this week recommended to the UK government that it should agree to the approval for use of the COVID-19 vaccine developed by Pfizer-BioNTech. It is the season to be jolly, but it is also the season to be jolly careful. We don't want to ban Christmas. It is with a very heavy heart, I must tell you, we cannot continue with Christmas as planned. Can you give us a cast-iron guarantee that exams will not be cancelled? Absolutely. I can confirm that GCSEs, A-levels and AS-level exams will not go ahead this summer. The government is once again instructing you to stay at home. The rules are actually very simple and clear. You know, the crocus of, of hope is poking through the, uh, the frost. The vaccine is the way out. On this day, I should just really repeat that I am deeply sorry for every uh, life that has been lost and of course as, as, uh, as Prime Minister I take full responsibility for everything that the government uh, has done. What's the name of that drug again Chris? Tocilizumab. Say again? Tocilizumab. Toc. 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 We're going to get this right. Tocilizumab. Is it toc Tocilizumab? Near enough PM. When I clapped for carers I meant it. He clapped for carers and he shut the door in their face at the first opportunity. We also know that AstraZeneca has unfortunately underproduced and underdelivered. If the situation does not change, we will have to reflect on how to make exports to vaccine producing countries dependent on their level of openness. I'm reassured by talking to EU partners over the last few months that they don't want to see uh, blockades. I think that's very, very important. We're all facing the same pandemic. We all have the same problem. On the continent right now, you can see, sadly, there is a, a third wave uh, underway. And people in this country should be under no illusions that previous experience has taught us that, that when a wave hits our friends, it, it I'm afraid, uh, washes up on our shores as well. And I expect that we will, we will feel those effects in, in due course. Blimey, what a year it has been. And we're going to reflect on the political impact of the pandemic, a one year on since the first lockdown was announced with a special Times Radio focus group with Kex CNC. James Johnson, former number 10 uh, pollster, will be here talking us through what our focus group of uh, swing voters had to say about Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. And, yes, they do all still love Rishi Sunak. Before that, though, uh, it's our columnist panel. No David Aronovich. He's still off uh, doing his Britain's Got Talent audition or whatever it is he's doing. So we've got Patrick Maguire instead, Redbox editor, joining Danny Finkelstein. Well, <laughs> let's talk about uh, our childhoods, our misspent youth, if you like, and demonstrations and protests. We've obviously seen... In the last uh, 10 days or so, you know, protests of different kinds. Well, there was the vigil, first of all, Sarah Forever, which was quite heavily policed. And then obviously at the weekend, we saw the protests in uh, Bristol, this kill the bill protest. Uh, and this question of, you know, the, the legality of protests and the, the policing bill to, to sort of crack down on annoying protests and so on. Do protests ever achieve it? Have you ever been on a, on a, on a march or a rally, Danny? I've been on two, uh, many, many years apart. One was against uh uh, against apartheid when um, uh, Mr Botha came to London. Oh, Danny, I think we've lost, uh, we'll lost you there mid-anecdote. Mid we'll come back to Danny in a sec. Uh, Patrick, um, your marching and protesting days. Yeah, God, this reflects very badly on me as a, as a journalist, but in my time at university, I, I fancy myself as a very serious student reporter and uh, I edited the student newspaper at my university with a with a, a valued uh, Times colleague who I won't embarrass. Um, <laughs> but we we uh, we we went to cover uh, a march for free education, and 
um, ended up being handed placards and any pretense that we were there to report impartially and without fear or favour on the march sort of went out the window. We had a nice amble um, with, uh, you know, with some anti-austerity placards. And then we ended up rock popping Douglas Carswell and uh, repaired for a pint. Because uh, I remember, you know, Douglas Carswell at the time was um, in the thick of his war against the UKIP leadership. And uh, Paul Nuttall, who was then UKIP's higher education spokesman, said, you know, good luck to good luck to everyone on this march. And, and Douglas Carswell said, you know, well, you're all thugs. So we repaired to a pub and wrote a very feverish story about Douglas Carswell defying the UKIP whip to, uh, and we thought it was the biggest scoop of our lives. Um, <laughs> <laughs> See, sympathise, sympathise. I once organised a march when I was at sixth form in Taunton. We organised a march against uh, increasing tuition fees and hired uh, Timmy Mallet to uh, draw the crowds, spending £1,700 of the student union's funds, which at the time was, I think, more than a year's tuition. Uh, and um, he uh, invited people... We sort of hired a local radio roadshow unit in the centre of town, invited people up to be bonked on the head by Timmy Mallet, and then somebody ran off with one of his little mallets, and then he packed up and left. So uh, I'm not sure what the moral of that story is. <laughs> I also once took a busload of sixth formers to London for uh, a march against tuition fees, and I got slightly caught up in a slightly sort of rebel element and, and may have sat down in the road outside Parliament before being very politely asked to move by the police, which I just did. Um, and I'm not sure... And I didn't go to university, so I never paid any tuition. And I was never totally sure that free tuition fees was a terribly good idea. But we had a lovely day out, which is the main, which is the main thing. Sorry, Danny, we stopped you mid-flow, or, or technology intervened to stop you mid-flow. No, yes, it did. Yeah, I, I actually think what it was was a colleague... Uh, a colleague telephoned me, and it must have cut, uh, ah. cut me out. Uh, but in any case, um, you on the, radio. The, the two demonstrations were, were one one against apartheid, where Chris Mullen of Tribune tried selling me a copy of Tribune newspaper, so I knew they were in trouble since he was the editor and he was personally selling them on demo. Um, <laughs> and the other was the Enough is Enough demonstration many years uh, later with a bunch of sort of bewildered uh, Jewish friends, none of whom had been on many, let's put it that way, on many demos. And the police, the police's new protest power were not necessary um, for this, except for the fact that, of course, they're useful for static demos, and it was quite static. And, uh, that, um, uh, I remember that was sort of quite polite. It was people sort of very, you know, like you said, slightly awkwardly standing around outside Parliament holding placards, but being... We literally couldn't believe we were there. And actually, I still look back on that as quite a surreal thing. But it's interesting, because my general outlook on... I'm not a big as you might probably guess, a big demonstration fan. But, um, you know, but sometimes it is necessary. And I was reading the other day about the fact that my grandfather was involved in a mass funeral for for anti-Semitic murders in Poland when uh, when he was a young man. You know, sometimes they are necessary and they and they can achieve something. And, and actually, I think the Enough is Enough demonstration was very effective in in terms of turning what had been a long-standing concern about what was happening uh, on the left to into, you know, a, a, a proper rebellion against it. Um, so it can it can be successful. I suppose that's the thing. It, it depends what you think of the the point of of a demonstration or a protest is, uh, Patrick. I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about coming in this morning was uh, the 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 Remain marches. You know, the anti Brexit marches. You know, were, were there a million people? Were there five hundred thousand people there? Um, and I, I always basically thought this isn't going to make any difference. There isn't going to be a second referendum. However, if you're feeling particularly upset, and I remember speaking to people who went on those marches who just thought we're not really expecting anything to change, but it's quite nice to know that there are other people who think the same as you. And actually it's being part of that community. Yes, having a nice day out with your waitrose, um, uh, picnic nibbles, whatever it might be. But um, it's not necess- you don't necessarily do it thinking you're going to bring down the government, but you want to know that people are taking notice of you and that you're, you're part of a gang who, who's, who share these views. Yeah, and I think Charles Walker, who uh, the sort of lockdown sceptic Tory MP, put this very well in the speech he made um, uh, uh, on the policing bill uh, last week on this very issue. And obviously, um, you know, Tory Tory backbenchers are not the sort of people who you'd expect to defend um, the right of, you know, trustafarians in Bristol to go and march against anything. 
but you know he's uh, uh, you know he wasn't actually he wasn't saying he wasn't going on to preemptively excuse violent protests but he was saying it's a really important safety valve in a democratic society that you can go out and if you're you know you might be annoyed about uh, the lack of disabled access to a church hall or you know it might be uh, an existential uh, matter of politics but you you have the right to go out shout for a bit and feel like you have you know released some pressure um, you know, you, 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 it's a it's a safety valve for issues big and small. And even if at the end of the day we we still left the EU um, or the GP surgery is still shut, you have you have felt like you have an in- input into some conversation or other. And Danny, having you know worked with and uh, for and had contact with party leaders in the past and prime ministers, do they take any notice? Is that how big does a you know the 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 whether it's a march against the Iraq War well, or against Brexit? Do, do there is there a I sort do, of? I do think very. I do think the Iraq War was was an important demonstration because it illustrated the demographic spread of that argument as well as the size of it, and it was impactful and i think enough enough is enough demonstration had an impact as well um unfortunately it is also true that hugely violent demonstrations can have an effect as well just simply because they shock people um so they can yeah they can make have a political impact and actually when someone does make a very very loud noise outside downing street for 10 out you know there's always as you know often off across the road uh loud music you know be people playing it and inside you can hear that and it's quite disruptive um and so it does make some sort of impact although a lot of the time you actually don't know what it's for uh, and sometimes you don't even know what it's for when you go outside and ask them um so um the the you know it can it can um make an impact and the judgment is simply um you know to what extent do you allow people to sit in the middle of the road and for how long and is it reasonable to have some limits on how long they're allowed to sit there or or they only be able to set those limits themselves that's really what the whole debate on the police protest bill is going to well ought to be about um because those are the questions that are still left but it can be effective yes i've seen it be effective i was just i was just thinking actually that the, the, the march we went on against tuition fees i think it was on a saturday and we weren't even supposed to be going past parliament it was a sort of rebel edit obviously there was nobody there anyway so uh, sitting in the road outside parliament on a reasonably quiet saturday will um uh, <laughs> which made no difference to anybody at all. Uh, talking of sort of things being more symbolic than effective, let's talk about flags. Uh, there's been a lot of hoo-ha about flags in the last uh, week because um, uh, a BBC breakfast presenter, uh, Charlie State, dared to mock uh, Robert Jenrick's flag for not being as big as some of his cabinet colleagues. I wrote about it in my column on Saturday and sort of wish I hadn't bothered, frankly, because my... My mentions are now full of people sending people uh, sending me pictures of flags. If he, well, I suppose the first question is, how many flags have you got in your house, Patrick? I've got three, actually, Matt. I'm, I'm very glad you asked. I, I'm sat at my desk and pinned to the wall is an Irish tricolour. Uh, I've got a larger Irish tricolour in my living room. And I've also got an Egyptian flag pinned to my living room wall. Uh, the Egyptian flag is Patrick, a tribute. Patrick, why do you uh, hate Britain? <laughs> well, I, actually, it's it's. I, I love Mohamed Salah, uh, the Liverpool striker, so that explains the Egyptian flag. Uh, you know, I'm of uh, as as the name Patrick McGraw would suggest. I'm you know a member of the Irish diaspora, and growing up, I, you know, the Irish flag was always a fairly benign uh, symbol of you know family connections, and I only actually realised it could be an exclusionary thing. Uh, on a school trip to Alton Towers, and there was a new boy from Bootle whose family turned out to be very involved in the Orange Lodge uh, in Liverpool. <laughs> and he asked lots of um, quite intense questions about my surname uh, and my views on the, the uh, unification of Ireland. Um, but, you know, I think uh, I, I don't go around waving it. It's just a sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a tribute to my, to my ancestry, as it were, I think. But, it, you know, it depends on the intent. And where you are, you know, if I was to go down the Shankill Road in Belfast with the flags from my flat, well, I think most people would be amused by the Egyptian one. But, um, you know, as a private display of family loyalty, I think. Um, my, all right. my grandfather had uh, had a flag uh, outside his house uh, because they were part of the Second Republic of Poland and they were emphasising their Polish nationalism, particularly because they were Jews. Uh, then when the Soviet Union invaded, they uh, they insisted that people put communist red flags outside uh, the house. And my grandfather then went and consulted his neighbour, who had been three times Prime Minister of Poland, you know, should he take his flag down and put 
a, a communist flag up and his neighbour said, yes, you'd better. So he did. He had a communist flag outside his house for the last few months in which he lived in it before they arrested him. Uh, so flags can have like a very big symbolic effect. I didn't quite seriously. We don't have any flags, though, in, in Albury Drive, Pinner. <laughs> we, I think I've got a few um, uh, where we might have bought them for a jubilee. I think there's a, if I was at home... Uh, still at my, my desk, uh, broadcasting from home. I've got a cup with sort of, I think there's an American flag in it, a French one, ones that we've sort of picked up on holidays and that sort of. I tend not to sort of hang them out of the, the window. Well, I, th- I think, I th- sorry, I think I think it's really interesting because as someone whose first memory of flags was the year 2002, right? So we had the Queen's Golden Jubilee and uh, the 2002 World Cup in quick succession. And obviously, you know, a lot of Union Jackery. And I remember getting a free... Uh, a lot of childhood reminiscences from me on this show this morning, but a free uh, cross of St George from JJB Sports, and it's only actually you know when you when you come of age and realise actually these symbols that you see as quite benign, depending on the context in which you're introduced to them as a child, are actually freighted with actually quite nasty symbolism to some people. It's interesting. I think there was a moment in that sort of uh, early New Labour period where these things were right for reclamation and now sort of two decades on it feels that the conversation has uh shifted back to perhaps where it was earlier in the earlier in in this sort of you know later it is and i suppose it goes it does go in waves i mean i think my sort of earliest memory of this thing is probably like a ve day uh anniversary and sort of you know the village taken over and trying to make it well actually it looked like it was 1940s most of the time but um, you know <laughs> putting up some bunting to try and make it look slightly different but um and then it sort of goes in well it's sort of the cool britannia thing of the 90s i think probably the the, the olympics in 2012 a sort of similar thing i mean my overall set point which i made in my column of the times on saturday was it's perfectly all right to put up a flag but the most british thing to do is to take the mickey out of somebody who's put up a big flag in their front room um and, and actually this sort of uh, respecting, being respectful or patriotic is fine, but actually it's a very British thing to just sort of slightly take the mic. Although someone has just texted in, uh, Patrick, after you were talking about your flag, saying, I'm from Belfast. They say that imitation is a sincerest form of flattery, but if I was you, I wouldn't bother having a pointless fight about flags, uh, for, <laughs> which I think is probably uh, some uh, uh, top advice. Um, uh, somebody who uh, does like the flags, uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, never seen more than about three feet away from a saltire. Um, what do you think uh, will happen next in uh, Scotland? Just completely by coincidence, as we awaited the verdict on uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, whether or not she misled Parliament, she's published draft legislation for the holding of a second independence referendum. How should Boris Johnson respond to that? Can he just keep saying no, 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 uh, Danny? I don't think so. Um, I, I think he, I think that's what he will do because I can understand the political logic from his own short-term point of view. Uh, from the long-term point of view of the union, I don't think that is the right route. Um, I, the, the think tank I'm chairman of onward published a whole load of data yesterday about um, you know the, the about. Uh, the idea of a referendum and I think you know if the if the SNP push for a sort of independence referendum that they organise by themselves they won't enjoy uh, support but it's very important uh, for the argument for the union that they that Scottish people don't feel that they're being told whether they can hold a referendum or not so it's it's all quite delicate um, the, the the best way of preventing a uh, second referendum is for the SNP not to win a majority uh, in the in the elections, uh, because of the Greens, I expect they probably will win a majority for the independence referendum. Uh, but if they didn't, that would take the pressure off a lot. Um, and I think that's probably the first the first thing that um, you know people who support the union should try and do um, is prevent that from happening. Uh, but if it does happen, then I think you know my own view is the lesson we learned from the European referendum i was in favor of holding the european referendum and the same logic means that i don't think you can resist it when there's a lot of pressure for uh, a referendum even if you'd like to um but i think the other lesson of it is um it shouldn't be held until people know what the actual question is and that means that probably you should try and negotiate the terms of whatever settlement the SNP would seek afterwards first before you had a referendum That's interesting. but most important you've got to take the people of scotland with you on that choice and that decision because they're ultimately going to be doing the voting what about you patrick are you is a part of you professionally that would like a big a big vote this year or next year or um you know it's been a while since the the We've we've gone to the the ballot box. 
Oh, yeah, always. I think journalists, well, look, I'm in my 20s and don't have children. So I I'm, speak from a position of privilege, as it were. But I always find I'm always slightly bewildered when journalists reaction to an election or a big event is to say, oh, God, I can't be bothered. It's the, you know, it's the stuff of politics. But I think Danny raises a really interesting question, a uh, really interesting point about uh, denying the SNP a majority, because that throws up two questions for Labour, i.e. Scottish Labour, i.e. what should it do in the short term to tick up the sort of four or five points that needs to be in a position to deny the SNP a majority? And what should it do long term to, uh, if it's at all possible, to be in a position where it's a viable challenger to the SNP? And interestingly, I think that there are two separate questions there. In the short term, it's under Anna Sarwar's new leader, um, looking credible, um, you know, basically being on the pitch because even you know three or four years into his leadership nobody more people didn't know who Richard Leonard was and the few people that did know who he was thought he was a clown um and actually it doesn't necessarily mean having the same stance on the constitutional issue that a long a, a Labour Party that's viable as a mainstream party potentially a government in Scotland needs to have in the long term I would say actually the other side of the leadership debate um which is to say we're not necessarily pro-independence but we're not going to get anywhere if we're precluding uh, or foreclosing um, a huge chunk of uh, opinion in Scotland by saying no to a referendum in all circumstances. I think in the longer term, the Scottish Labour Party, and this might be lethal uh, um, for one flank of their support, might have to shift to a position, especially if there's a pro-independence majority, in saying, look, the Scottish people have spoken, because I'm not entirely sure, even as it might be viable in the short term for them to, um, you know, increase their support at the margins. And that's what they need um, by being an anti-referendum party. I think they will have to strategically shift to at least being receptive to the idea of getting, giving the Scottish people a say, even if um, they remain unionist as a point of principle. That was Daniel Finkstein and Patrick McGuire. Of course, you can read them both in The Times. Danny writes his column on a Wednesday. Patrick does the Red Box morning email Monday to Friday. Just get yourself a time subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is The Times Radio Focus Group. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for the Times Radio Focus Group. And I know some of you will get in touch to tell me that uh, these people uh, don't know what they're talking about. But this is why it's a good corrective to find out what the public really thinks. Now then, we reflect on a year, in, an extraordinary year in politics, it has to be said. Uh, we've convened the Times Radio Focus Group. We've been doing this every month since Times Radio launched in June last year. Downing Street uses focus groups. The Labour Party uses focus groups to find out what voters are really saying. 
about our political leaders. So what we thought is we'd, we'd convene a group uh, this time around to reflect on what's happened over the last uh, 12 months. As ever, joined by James Johnson, who used to run polling for number 10 under Theresa May and has carried out once again this focus group with the global communications firm Kext CNC. Morning, James. Good morning. Right, before we kick off uh, with this group, explain, because I can hear, if you listen very carefully, you can hear someone tapping out a tweet saying, well, that's just a group of people. That doesn't tell us anything like political, uh, like opinion polling does. Explain the value of a focus group um, as distinct from a representative opinion poll. Yeah, so very much not trying to categorically say what the British public uh, think. That's for polls, for bigger polls with bigger sample sizes. What focus groups are a collection of specifically recruited people um, along lines that are of interest to politicians, um, to businesses uh, and indeed to us. And the people we have recruited uh, for this focus group today are swing voters. Um, Half of them voted Labour in 2019, half of them voted Conservative. And they're now undecided um, about how they would uh, vote today. Um, So, as I say, not a comprehensive view of what they think, but a snapshot of where they are. And it allows parties to test messages, to get a sense of how their leaders are going down and how to sort of form their narratives and how they talk to these voters. And it is striking, actually, having sat in, I, mean, I, I, I think I'd listened to one or two before, but since we've been doing this sort of regularly uh, since June last year, it is striking how often what they say completely chimes with opinion polls. And so people who look at the polls and the baffled by the fact that people uh, still have some sympathy for the government or or think they've been doing a, d- a difficult job in a, a, a difficult circumstances um, only have to listen into these focus groups to, to find that people who aren't particularly politically engaged uh, much of what they said does chime with with the opinion poll so what we thought we'd do is sort of work through the year chronologically uh, so so you, you started off by asking them just to sort of reflect back on what happened in the spring of last year and in particular how the government approached it when first faced with the pandemic i don't think they knew what had hit them really and mm. the trouble is they should have definitely looked at what was going on abroad the first thing i remember about about it was the news and i remember seeing the Chinese, all in white suits, they they manhandled some people with truncheons and God knows what and chucked them in the back of a van. And I just think if that's how drastic they was, why did we wait so long before we did anything? And I would say the same, you know, why did they take so long? There's other countries, you know, they're showing you the pictures, they're, they're blinding you with all these statistics on the television every day, that people are dying, this is happening, that's happening. And other countries, there's sanitising benches in the park and curfews at 10 o'clock. Why do we wait so long? You know, surely we must have had some sort of plan for something like this in our country. I mean, not COVID, obviously, but there must have been some plan for a disaster. Why don't we just put it into action and start following it and doing something about it rather than sitting back and waiting for it to hit us like, you know, like in the face? Um, I think uh, mistakes were made. Um, I think um, they could have acted quicker. I think they could have shut the borders um, a lot sooner. So that's the sort of the picture. And probably if you you could ask hundreds and thousands of people what the reflections were on that, and you'd probably get a fairly similar picture, James. A tough uh, situation to find yourself in, caught a bit off guard, with hindsight possibly could have done something differently, but, but still reasonably forgiving. Yeah, and I think this is something we'll come back to throughout this group, that although people are critical of the government's initial response, you heard it there, they're asking, why did it take them so long? You could see around the world that we were going to have to do something. They do come back to a sort of uh, sense that it was unprecedented, um, that the government are people like us, one one respondent said in the focus group, um, and none of us realised uh, what, what the gravity was. And I think one person even said, you know, we should cut them a bit of slack as a result. And other people pointed the blame at China and some of these other structural factors that might explain the extent of the spread of the virus. So absolutely a critical view of the government. But there was a a readiness and a a willingness to actually say, well, look, it's not entirely their fault. They were caught off guard. And that's something we've seen, I think, pretty much every month we've been doing these focus groups. Okay, and then let's uh, you asked them uh, what they sort of remember once we'd gone into that lockdown how their lives changed, what they remembered, what really stuck in their minds. Realising how long it was going to go on for, you know, in the beginning we were sort of under the impression it would be a few weeks. The thing that struck me is when people just started dying 
and then you realise just what was going on. I think she's on the head there. The deaths and uh, people you, you've known. I mean, I've known a couple of my friends who had it, uh, COVID, and one of them was in hospital for about a month. Um, the first was probably the panic buying, really. Um, that probably drove a lot of people to mm. despair. Something that somebody hasn't said is, I've never noticed how many birds you can actually hear singing um, with normal traffic and things going on. The, the, the amount of wildlife that I've actually noticed around the town that I live in. Yeah, just the sudden enormity of the situation. Uh, for me, it's my first week in a new job, so I remember Boris Johnson's like, press conference um, for us all to stay at home um, and really, yeah, the panic buying, and, and that's when it became real. Um, and for me, really, I think the community, there was a lot of really nice things. The community spirit sort of came out in everybody. Um, Neighbours were coming to help, you know, did you want this? Did you want that? If you're staying in. Um, but for me personally, I miss going in to see my mum, who was in an old people's, you know, she's in a care home. So, I mean, that was immediately shut down. So I didn't see my mum for sort of, I think it was about four or five months. I mean, that really took me hard. It was hard not to see her. For me, it was when they started doing the the, the, uh, the coronavirus news uh, from Downing Street, and it, that was like such a strange thing to see on, on the television, and uh, and running home to be to to listen to it, to make sure I was in or had the TV on at five o'clock. I mean, it became like part of my whole life to put the TV on to listen to what they were going to say every day. One of the things, uh, Boris Johnson, if he knew what was going to happen, or anybody in a party would never have took this job on, because it is horrendous, really. I mean, that, again, James, will resonate with lots of people. I mean, politically, that moment, you know, we've got so used to now the Prime Minister doing a press conference on an almost daily basis from uh, Downing Street, and it was extraordinary the way our whole lives became sort of, you know, um, structured around the day and that five o'clock update and that real sense from... Uh, of hanging on every word of a politician and, and the way that the nor- normal people uh you know as they are on the on the on the uh focus group suddenly became very 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 politically engaged yeah absolutely and you heard the lady speaking there about the news briefings um the weird way when we asked you know, what people's main political memories were lots of people referring back to the press conferences boris johnson's sort of stay at home uh message and some of the other political uh things that were going on at the time as well i mean it's quite it's quite a sort of um a very vivid uh recollection you get there this sort of contrast between uh deaths being announced the emptiness of the streets the panic buying and also this nice weather the bird song um it really is a sort of almost eerie reflection of that time but politically engaged yes um of course th- that doesn't necessarily mean they're viewed this pandemic in a political way and i think this is something you know that we do see again and again in the focus groups that although people are critical of the past and although people were very aware of what was happening and they're very aware of what politicians have said what they're not necessarily thinking of it in terms of this has improved my view of boris johnson or this is worse than my view of boris johnson or indeed other, other leaders as well i suppose that's the thing isn't it if if if, if you don't spend your whole life seeing everything politically you don't see this politically either. You know, you you sort of see it more as a sort of natural disaster and a nightmare for whoever one is invited. As the last guy on that clip was saying, you know, nobody would want to have been in Boris Johnson's position. He was then, you know, incredibly ill right at the beginning of it. And uh, so so you then don't see it as a political thing. You think, you know, you think of your loved ones and the economy maybe and your job and, and all that sort of thing, rather than thinking, oh, who's had a good day today politically? Because, of course, um, that's very much yours and my job. One thing when we've done these focus groups, um, certainly all of last year, and then it sort of stopped at the beginning of this year when people became obsessed with the, the vaccine, but we do these focus groups on uh, Zoom and the sort of focus group drinking game uh, means there's always a big gulp when one man in particular uh, gets a mention. The Dominic Cummings affair with the sort of hypocrisy of uh, him going to Barnard Castle. That sort of stands out. I mean, I bet Boris could have absolutely battered him for doing that. You know, I mean, it, it, it just made him look like hypocrites, really. I bet you could have absolutely battered him as well. And James, if you look at the polling as well as the focus groups, that was a real turning point, wasn't it, when it emerged that Dominic Cummings had 
had having thought that he might have COVID and his wife had COVID, uh, thought that uh, the right thing to do was to get in the car and drive now famously to Barnard Castle. Exactly. I should hasten to add that that uh, chiming noise you heard after she said Dominic Cummings wasn't our sort of alert when Dominic Cummings get mentioned. <laughs> that was just a, an email notification on her, on her laptop, I think. But uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so it's, it is quite an interesting one, this, though, because it was something that really it was one of those rare things last year that wasn't just a question of competence. Um, but was a question of values. And a lot of voters, particularly those in those red wall seats that the Conservatives gained for the first time in 2019, it really did make them step back and say, if Boris's right-hand man is doing this, then what does that say about Boris and the Conservative Party? That was a real sort of um, stretch of, of credibility and their faith in, in, in the Conservatives. That said, however, it came up every month last year, but this is the first time we've heard it this year in 2021, and it was very much when we were asking them to look back and reflect. So it seems that some of that sort of toxicity from the Cummings affair does seem to be fading. Perhaps that's because Dominic Cummings left, he's in the, he's in the news less, um, or perhaps, as you say, it is the effect of the vaccine rollout and being in you know, a new year. Okay, well, let's move on then. So uh, after the Dominic uh, Cummings uh, fandango, uh, we move into the summer, the end of that first uh, lockdown. And uh, one person uh, really dominating then when he all uh, promised us uh, a half-price lunch. I love Rishi, but I, um, I, um, at the time I, I thought this was crazy. All of a sudden from nothing to going out all the time, eating out sort of Monday to Wednesday or whatever. It was like it, everybody was let out of uh, out of a cage, and it all went a bit potty. Yeah, maybe it was just too much. But I, I did manage to go on holiday, so I don't know. It, I think we should have been a little bit more cautious all the way through the summer. Yeah, I, I agree there. I think um, that was a crazy idea, it, 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 with all the best intentions in the world, I might add, but a crazy idea. Yeah, not too well. I think we were relaxed to lockdown too quickly opened up too soon. Um, we're in a rush, I think, to get everyone back to work and get the economy going again. Um, and eat up, eat up to help out, was it? Um, yeah, that was just uh, as a lasting memory of that period, really. You know, everyone was let out of their cage and when animals get let out of their cage, they do crazy things. And that's what, exactly what we did. <laughs> now, apart from the brilliant metaphor of animals being let out of their cage, which is which I think will really resonate, James, the, the thing that really struck me about this is that while people now might say, well, we shouldn't have done this, we shouldn't have done that, blimey, we all needed it last summer. And there is this maybe this slight self-reflection that uh, we wanted to go uh, and see our friends. We wanted to go to the pub, even if deep down we knew that it probably wasn't the right thing to do. I think I think that's right. And that animal you know, being out the cage uh, metaphor really sums it up that, yes, people are looking back and saying maybe eat out to help out was a mistake. They're also saying, well, I went on holiday. Well, I, I made the most of that. Um, you know, I really got into it and enjoyed it. They don't sort of blame themselves for that because they sort of say, talk about how they were doing what the government told them to do. But there is certainly that sense of shared responsibility and that we all went a bit sort of stir, stir crazy in the summer is, is, is the way they talk about it. But look out again as well for those sort of um, uh, explainers and excuses that people uh, talk about. You know, you heard it there um, when someone was being critical. They said, with, with the best intentions in the world, I hasten to add, uh, I love Rishi um, and obviously the animals in the cage uh, line as well. There is this constant sort of sense when we look back over this year of people sort of always sort of correcting themselves or always sort of um, perhaps making an excuse for some of the things that haven't gone so well. And that's really important because obviously voters at the moment, they're feeling pretty positive about the government in light of the vaccine rollout. Their memories are also sort of being selected and being uh, viewed in that way as well, which gives them a bit more of a positive light. Let's take a listen to uh, one person in particular on the focus group. No, I think women like him a lot, <laughs> really. I think he's really... You know, every woman that you speak to always says, oh, love Rishi. And uh, whether he's a good chancellor or not, I don't know, but uh, he's very popular. Yeah, although actually I looked at the polling and actually he does seem to be more popular, or at least he's got higher approval ratings amongst uh, men than uh, women. So maybe maybe not. Anyway, let's move on from the Rishi Sunak uh, loving. We approach Christmas now in the Times Radio focus group. Um, uh, James Johnson, former pollster for Number 10, uh, still with us. Uh, James, let's take a listen to uh, the panel's discussion about what happened at Christmas. 
Um, well, Christmas was a farce, wasn't it? It was awful. As much as I would have loved to have seen family and things like that at Christmas, it was as though when he said we could see each other for three days and this, that, did, did they think that COVID wasn't, COVID was going to go hide itself for them three days while we all mingled and then it was going to rear its ugly head again after, after Christmas? I feel like um, they should not have made any promises and evaluate the situation at the time. I think they were just trying to kind of reward everyone and, and allow everyone just to see the family. Christmas shouldn't have happened. This, in my opinion, they shouldn't have even opened the shops. We can do it online now. Don't get me wrong, I went to the shops and I made sure everyone had a Christmas present. But like we said before, we're, we've all been caged up. It was a little bit of happiness. It was a little bit of a break from the norm. It was a bit of normality. But realistically, should it have happened? I don't think it should. It's a job with animals, isn't it, James? If you let them out of the cage, they will go Christmas shopping. <laughs> they, they will indeed. And people, this is really where I think the most criticism came in, actually. It's where people felt sort of most angry. Perhaps it's a little bit more raw, a little bit more recent. Um, but again, you know, the excuses were there. People very keen to point out some of those extenuating circumstances. Someone said very clearly, you know, it wasn't his fault, meaning meaning Boris's. Um, others said it's not the government's fault. It's not directly their fault. Someone even spoke about the bad weather bringing everybody down. Maybe that was making us critical of the government. So it comes back to that point again about, you know, how at the moment people feeling pretty positive. They're viewing a lot of these memories uh, retrospectively in a positive way. Now, it's quite interesting because when in November, December, if you listen back to our focus groups then on Times Radio, people were much more critical about those past mistakes. So it could well be that these memories are sort of in flux. People feel good about the government. They make excuses. People are feeling bad about the government. And that could happen again. Then these examples may sort of come back to the forefront. It's a bit with a sort of like uh, a friend or a partner. And, you know, they keep behaving badly. They're doing things that annoy you. Um, and someone asks you, why do you keep seeing them? Why do you keep hanging out with them? And you always sort of feel like you've got to justify it. You make excuses for the person. When you break up with them or fall out with them, you suddenly remember all those things they did. And you're feeling quite a, a bit a bit worse about them. Now, it's unclear how where that's going to land with the public, whether they're actually going to sort of always like their dysfunctional friend of the government or whether they're going to eventually go to ditch them but for now they're in the former camp rather than the latter well yeah let's move on then to the like the next stage if you like and the government's more recent performance particularly like you said the impact of the vaccine rollout considering what's happened i think they've done very well really and i can now i've had the vaccination i can actually see a light at the end of the tunnel which i never could six eight months ago uh yeah i think um there's some things could have been done better but, uh, yeah, we have really um, succeeded in other areas. Yeah, it's kind of a bit of both. A bit of both, and I just think we should give some, although there's all the hoo-ha about blood clots and that, I think we should give our scientists some recognition for coming up with a vaccine and everyone wanted it. And now I think that's all to do with us Brexit, but that's my opinion. But, yeah, it's 50-50. <laughs> Yeah, on the positive side, like I said, you quickly forget um, the vaccine's been super positive and the rollout's been yeah, very successful so far. Um, I think we're all feeling a bit more positive now. I don't think we know all know where we're going and we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Um, and I think come the summer, we'll all be out doing what we normally do. I think the same as everybody else. There's been good parts and there's bad parts. I think... Um, and, and the vaccine rollout has just been amazing. It really has. And um, I just can't wait to get my second one. <laughs> a lot of people haven't had the first, but I think it's amazing what they've done. I really do. And uh, that is, is a posit the big positive. James, I can almost feel people screaming uh, at me, saying, oh, what's the matter with these people? 126,000 deaths. You know, the worst, the worst death rate, the worst economic impact. Uh, why Why is it that voters are more willing to, uh, to forgive, if not necessarily forget the Prime Minister? There's a few things going on. I think first is, is that this very recent memory of the success of the vaccine rollout, and even actually some of the more recent news about the potential dip in vaccine supply, 
really was not blunting perceptions of the government's performance. People really sort of wrote that off and said, you know, there's always going to be dips and actually even talked about scaremongering um, and that actually the record was really good as it was. So the vaccine rollout, um, uh, very, very positive. Uh, there's also this sort of sense and tendency to say, well, you know, it came as such a surprise. You know, everybody was sort of blindsided um, and they and they do look at that. There's also a sense that it wasn't just the government, perhaps members of the public breaking the rules. Um, some of that shared responsibility we talked about earlier. And fundamentally, there's also another thing at play here, which is that voters do tend to look forward rather than back. Um, we've obviously spent a whole focus group here asking them to look back. But there is a point about how they form their reputation, uh, their perceptions and, and reputations, uh, view of reputations of certain people in, in, and governments and, and parties, which is that they very rarely tend to look back and sort of judge them on a major sort of problem or disaster. They tend to look forward to what they're promising and pledging for the future rather than what's happened in the past. And that sort of re- re- recency bias, uh, as we call it, it do- does seem to have quite an impact on on politics. And I suppose ultimately we're a long way from a general election yet, and uh, people will probably look to the future more than what happened. What will then by that point be three, four, uh, five years ago? Um, let's. Uh, I really liked this. You sort of rounded off this section by asking the uh, focus group again of swing voters. Some who voted Labour, some who voted Tory uh, in twenty nineteen. You asked them what grade they would give uh, the government for its handling of the last 12 months. B minus. D. E. C. C. B plus. I'd give it a B plus. It's quite, uh, so B minus D, E, C, 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 B plus, B plus. Um, I uh, posted that on uh, Twitter last night and, it, and asked people for their, their suggestions. I think I got everything from an A star to an F. I think. Uh, and then some people pointed out that if it was GCSE gradings, it should really be one to nine. Um, James, does that surprise you? I mean, if anything, you might think that those, that some of those grades are a bit higher than some people expected. Yeah, I think Boris Johnson's uh, father himself only stretched to a B plus. So uh, I think I think government will, could, could be quite happy with this, considering what's happened over the last 12 months. I think, uh, as we were saying, the vaccine rollout is really key to this. I think if we were asking this question in November or December, we really would be in sort of D&D territory. Um, it's really sort of easy to forget just how negative voters were at that point. They were still uh, reeling at the uh, the Dominic Cummings uh, situation. They were really sort of feeling down in the dumps about another lockdown being brought in in November. Um, and as I say, you know, these memories were were sort of seeming more negative to, to them than positive. That vaccine rollout has really turned it round. And we're now seeing sort of pretty average, average to okay marks for for the government by these voters. And uh, as I say, I expect considering what the last twelve months has been have been like, number ten will be quite happy with that. I suspect you might well be right. However, we will turn our attention next to uh, Keir Starmer. Across the UK, on DAB Digital Radio, on the free Times Radio app, and via your smart speaker, this is Times Radio. Yeah, Matt Jolly on Times Radio, bringing you the Times Radio focus group. James Johnson, former pollster for number 10, is still with us. He carried out the focus group for us with Kext CNC. So, James, before the news, we were talking about uh, Boris Johnson and the way that the uh, the group uh, viewed uh, the government. Just remind us how this group is made up, this focus group. Yep, so this is swing voters. So it's four people that voted Labour in 2019, four people that voted Conservative. They're drawn from Leeds, Southampton and Grimsby. Um, and then, and when we recruited them, they said they're undecided um, about how they would vote in an election tomorrow. So we've really sort of zoomed into that swing voter segment. OK, so we heard what they thought about Boris Johnson. Let's take a listen to what they thought about Keir Starmer. He's not stood out for me. So um, I can't really comment because he's not really pushed any of my buttons. because He's not stood out. Um, yeah, I don't know very much about him, to be honest. Um, don't know much about him, not really. He don't come on that much, does he? Not on the television that much, apart from his little face. But apart from that, no. Uh, I don't think he's a man for Labour. This is probably why a lot of us voted Conservative, because they've not had a decent leader for a long, long time. I mean, I just... Think of Stammer as Mr. Man on the Fence, really. He, he won't go one way or the other. So, no, he's not the guy for me. And I think Labour do need a powerful person in charge. Yeah, I was, when I first, when he sort of first came on the scene, I was quite impressed by the guy. He seemed pretty normal. Do you know what I mean? He just seems to sit on the fence and then jump on the story. 
you know, for public opinion, really. Yeah, I've only seen it a couple of times, but I wasn't too impressed. The quite generic responses to questions mm. didn't really set out his stall. Like, I didn't really understand his kind of vision for Labour at all. So, yeah, I don't really know, know too much about him. He, he doesn't seem to want to upset anybody, and you, you're, no, always, you're always going to upset somebody. I mean, wow, that's pretty brutal. But I think uh, this this was the bit that I thought was the worst. Apart from his little face. <laughs> Apart from his little face. Um, if you're if you're the leader of the opposition, uh, what almost a year is it? Next month is a year he's been in the job. Pete, I mean, they either don't know much about him or they've made their minds up. They don't think he's very good. Mister, sit on the fence. It's not great, is it, Matt? And I think that some will say, "Well, look, we're years out from another general election." Uh, however, two things on that. Firstly, is that reputations of political leaders do get formed early um, and that this is an important time to try to be stand out. And secondly, there are elections, very important elections for Labour coming up, both in Wales, um, in Scotland, and of course, uh, in local elections and mayorities across England as well. Now, the really striking thing about this is that for the last few months, we've had people saying, I don't really know. And sometimes they follow the opinion of others in the groups, but largely it's sort of quite neutral. That seems to now be shifting. People seem to be starting to make their mind up. And I've seen this in other focus groups as well. Um, and it's Labour voters from December 2019, as well as Conservative voters from 2019. And their main criticism seems to be focusing on this sense that he sort of goes where the votes are. And that's really dangerous in a sense, because that's becoming not only really a uh, clear problem for sort of his sense of consistency, but also his values, what his principles, does he stand for anything is something we hear quite a lot. And there's one particularly toxic quote that came through in the focus group, which was somebody said he doesn't seem like he's for the working class people anymore. And that's interesting because it's a similar problem to that Corbyn had, where, where people felt like they, he didn't stand up for them and working class people. But rather than that being based in concerns about his patriotism, like it was for Corbyn, it's based in this view of him as a sort of trained, suited politician who basically changes views depending on where public opinion and where the votes are. Now, it, it's, it's possible that Starmer's reputation can rebound. Of course it is. But at this moment, he's almost being seen as too clever by half by these voters. They're seeing through it. They know that he's moving to where the votes are. Somebody used the example of his view on Harry and Meghan, um, where he flipped uh, once he sort of saw where the wind was blowing on that. So a real criticism here that perhaps he's not a leader with strong values, but just another politician who's focused on pursuing votes. In some ways, that's the most dangerous combination for Keir Starmer, as far as the public are concerned. It's sort of interesting, because I've had these sort of arguments where people say, oh, they should, you know, now's not the time for him to be setting out his stall, you know, people aren't listening. People have been listening to politics in the last 12 months in a way that they haven't for, for generations, potentially. You know, following Downing Street press conferences and members of the Cabinet and, and so on. Um, you asked a very straightforward question, though. Do you currently think that Keir Starmer could win an election? This is what they said. Not currently, no. no. no not currently, no. No. I've always voted Labour until the last election because I couldn't vote for that other guy. But if they brought Keir Starmer in trying to win back votes, they won't be winning my vote back with him. He just doesn't make decisions, does he? Like like everyone said, he, he he's forever on one bandwagon. Then when it goes a bit tits up, he backtracks and jumps back on the fence until something else pops along. He doesn't, he's not. He doesn't seem strong enough to actually make a decision and say, this is my decision and this is what we're doing. And he doesn't seem like he's for the working class people anymore. I don't think at the moment, I don't think I've changed my mind from what I voted last time. Um, I don't think I can think politically, really, at the moment. I can't think about who I would vote for. Uh, but I think I, I feel at this minute, maybe I, I owe Boris a vote at the moment. Okay, and why is that? I don't know because I just think he's had such a horrible, horrible year. Um, I, I... And that's that's a key thing there, uh, James. Is that um, lots of people aren't uh, focusing on what might happen in the general election next time. Literally, while we've been talking, Keir Starmer has visited a hospital. Uh, at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London. He was asked about whether or not uh, it should be compulsory for care home staff to get the vaccination. 
He said, uh, I have some reservations about it. I think there are misgivings about that. And there are obvious arguments on both sides. I can see powerful arguments on both sides. I think the most important thing is to encourage people to come forward. If that doesn't sum up what we've just been discussing and Mr. On the Fence, whatever, uh, then uh, I don't know what does. Um, In the interest of balance, we should also uh, just take a listen to this last clip. This was, uh, you asked uh, the the, uh, focus group panel if they could send any message at all to the government. As we know, Boris Johnson is a big listener to this show on Times Radio. Uh, Send your message direct to Boris Johnson. Let's take a listen. I'd just say get this last stage right and make it clear exactly what we're supposed to do so we know and let's make this the last lockdown. Last lockdown. Uh, I'd like to say to him uh, that he needs to uh, get a bit tougher with Europe and uh, stop this blockade when they feel like saying it to, uh, in Ireland. Uh, to be more proactive. Not to be so um, buffoonery or whatever the word is and just be a little clearer in what he's actually trying to say and say it straight. A real plonker. It just needs this time to get a rigorous uh, roadmap, roadmap in place and get the message across before everybody just, you know, um, gets going again and forgets, forgets marketing and doesn't learn. Be honest and give us clear instructions what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, give us clear instructions and make sure this is the last lockdown. So here we are, James. A final thought then. The message to Boris Johnson, don't be a plonker. The message to Keir Starmer, get off the fence. I think that's probably probably fair. It was interesting in those messages to Boris Johnson that we saw some of those things that we have seen when they were more negative in previous focus groups. Perhaps this sense that he's not proactive enough, bit of buffoonery, um, not always had clear instructions and views. But absolutely, I think you know the, the the stuff we've heard about Keir Starmer here really you know should be a wake up call for Labour in some sense um, because it really does show that actually quite often, and I think we've seen this throughout the last few months when we've been doing this, the public are actually quite a bit cleverer than the politicians. They can see through it if you're just pursuing those votes and they can actually punish you for exactly that. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories that we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 